This episode of the Proceedings Podcast is brought to you by the members of the U.S. Naval Institute. Our members write, debate, and discuss key issues that ultimately strengthen the Navy, Marine Corps, and Coast Guard. Benefits include a subscription to our award-winning Proceedings Magazine, discounts to over a 1,000 titles from books published by the Naval Institute Press, and graphic novels from Dead Reckoning, a discounted subscription to Naval History Magazine, special invitations to conferences and events, and access to 146 years of archival information such as historic photos, oral histories, and so much more. For more, go to usni.org join. Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me for another history episode, we're having kind of a history palooza here, right? Indeed. Um, is live and in person in Studio A, the sonically perfect Studio A, Eric Mills. Good to see you, the Editor-in-Chief of Naval History Magazine. Thank you, Ward. It's great to see you again. It's really great to be here at Beach Hall doing these things the right way and uh, entering the 21st century with how we do them. But, you know, we kept the bongo pipeline alive all through COVID and kept getting the word out. Pirate the radio. The bongo pipeline, I like that. Pirate radio, if you Pirate will. Pirate radio, yeah. Now we moved up in the world. I will say, not unlike Fleetwood Mac Rumors is the perfect album, or some would say Genesis Trick of the Tale is the perfect album. I don't, do you have any that come to mind, the perfect album, if I say the perfect album? Um Hotel well, California by the, the Eagles? The second Pogues the, album, but I don't think I can say the, the title The second of it. what album? Album by the Pogues, but I oh. don't think I can say the title of that. Look on at here. you going deep with the Pogues. <laughs> um, but I'm saying that the June 2021 naval history issue is the perfect issue. And, oh, right? Okay. No, I, I'm, every, every article is smash. And we've had a couple of guests on the show from this issue, and now we have another one. All killer, no filler. Oh, I like it. And oh, by the way, our guest for the second time since the return to quote unquote normal is here in the studio with us. It's fantastic. Yes. This is the beginning of a new era. And it's a very exciting one, I have to say. Yes. And I feel like I don't have to shout into my computer, Mike. No, and I don't have to shout at my computer because the bandwidth sucks and people are breaking up all the time. Yeah, and you you move, it's like a um, a dubbed... um, action hong kong movie kung fu movie where <laughs> you say something and your lips move a second later so well i, I would better. freak out when the person starts freezing up and and i'm like oh here here we go or we have to go okay oh no 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 S- start from the thing you said like five minutes ago because you've been frozen right. since then so not a factor today here in studio a it's very organic it's very real it's very here <laughs> all the things we want to be in this life so why don't we introduce our guest eric well, with us today is one of our favorite authors, Craig Simons. Naval Institute people know Craig Simons well from his many great works. Uh, he's Professor Emeritus at the U.S. Naval Academy. He taught for 30 years here, served as chair of the history department. Um, when were you chair, Craig? Remind me. What years? Oh, what a good question. i got to think back. I think it was think 88 back. to 94. Okay, okay. So you... In the previous century. Yeah, so you were after me... As a mid, but before me as an instructor. Okay, so, there you go. Yeah, I graduated in 82 and then started teaching in 98. So we just missed each other on both ends, yeah. right? Well, I started teaching here in 1976. So I've Okay, did you teach plebe history? Because I, I think did. that's the only I time did. I went to the history department was for that. Yeah. yeah, 
I don't remember you being my prof, though. I don't think uh, you would, would remember. Listen, you would remember. I, I think you, you would, would know. I, 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 that's what I'm thinking. Yes. Right? You would remember, <laughs> Craig. He would have inspired you to higher heights of historical interest. Because that's what Craig does. Um, in his talking and in his writing, um, and he, Craig has written many wonderful books on a variety of naval history topics. Um, most germane to what we're going to talk about today was um, one of the books from his um, body of Civil War literature, The Civil War at Sea. Uh, and that's what we're going to talk about today. You know, the Civil War was primarily a land conflict, and so the crucial role played by the navies on both sides is often underappreciated. He figured during that war, more than three million Americans fought one another across a thousand-mile front for four years. Bull Run, Shiloh, Gettysburg became icons of U.S. history. But the navies, the U.S. Navy, and as well the Confederate Navy in a different way, were key factors in the direction and momentum and outcome of the war. So here to explain to us the blockading, raiding navies of the Civil War is Craig Simons. Welcome, Craig. Thank you, Eric. Uh, that was positively poetic as you were reading from my article there in <laughs> Naval History Magazine. Well, let's say paraphrase. Oh, uh, close enough. Yeah, and by the way, I want to second uh, the comments about this particular issue. I, I read every article in it, uh, not just my own, which uh, was very... Uh, very enlightening. That is always a good sign. You know, if you read the one beyond just your own one, and I know what you mean. I mean, it's like, <laughs> wow, I'm glad to be in this one. Yeah. There's all sorts of good stuff in here. It's a murderer's row of articles. But um, this is the beginning of a, a few years of coverage we're going to do um, for the Civil War throughout, off and on. Um, and we launched it in the spring of 21, just like the war launched in the spring of 61. So uh, I invite you just to... Sit back, relax, and tell us the importance of navies in America's defining conflict. Well, that's a large topic, of course, and you can't do a lot with it in, in 5,000 words. But I do think I tried to pick out the particular elements of the Navy's role, particularly the Union Navies, Confederate Navy too. But the Union Navy, uh, because it was the dominant Navy, and therein lies a tale, because this is the first war where the United States is the dominant Navy. I mean, we fought the British, we had fought the French. Uh, there had been the war with Mexico, but Mexico didn't even have a navy. They had two ships, sold them off before the conflict began because so, they knew what would happen to them. And so in terms of a naval confrontation, this is our first experience at being the top dog. Instead of being blockaded by the British, which we had been more than once, we were blockading our foe, that is the Confederacy, and that was a huge job. The Confederate coast, or at least the coast claimed by the Confederacy, was 3,500 miles long. If you measure it from, uh, you know, Alexandria, Virginia, all the way around the double coast of Florida up to Brownsville, Texas, you've got 3,500 miles. And there are near to 200 navigable inlets or harbor mouths where they can run in and out. So if you're going to try to blockade all that, you need a pretty substantial force. And quite frankly, when the war began, we did not have one. As you point out, this is the largest naval undertaking in all of U.S. history until World War One. this blockade. Um, and what was the nickname that it was given? Well, the name that was popular among the, the regular folks who read newspapers was the Anaconda Plan. And that still ends up in uh, history books a lot. And it's often attributed to Winfield Scott. 
And he did have the idea that the Confederacy could be quelled, not necessarily by beating it into submission, which in 1861 everybody hoped would not be necessary, but instead by demonstrating to the South that they needed this union. They were an agricultural society that needed the manufactured goods of the North. They needed the trade to carry their goods to overseas markets, to import the goods they could not manufacture themselves. So to demonstrate that, the idea of a blockade would show the South, oh my God, God, we've made a terrible mistake. Now, of course, what that overlooks is the tendency of people to be unable to admit that they ever made a mistake. The point of the blockade was not necessarily to bludgeon the South into submission. It was to demonstrate their dependence on the Union for their survival. It's kind of, as you're speaking, I'm thinking it's somewhat analogous to uh, Japan. Um, it was a um a, a powerful country deciding to go to war, but they needed to import most of what they needed. And therein lay their, uh, the death knell of them eventually. Uh, you know, we were able to, our submarines were able to stop anything from getting through there. Um, the South, you know, the slaveocracy was a little bit too much of a one dependent industry um, economy. And without being able to export and import everything else they needed, um, you can see how that would um, be what would show them the lesson. Of course, by, what is it, 1863, there, Richmond is just, like, going crazy. There's no food. Everything costs an insane amount of money. There's grumbling. Well, there are so two things that contribute to inflation. Inflation was a terrible enemy of the Confederacy, but there are a couple of things going on here. One is the shortage of imports. It's been demonstrated, I think convincingly, that the South did manage to import enough military goods, gunpowder, arms, cannon, lead, all the things necessary to a 19th century army to fight a war. But it had problems with the things at the periphery. Uh, and that had an impact on society as a whole and on inflation. But another thing that had at least as great an impact on inflation was that the South was a society that claimed government should get out of your way, which means they didn't want to enact any taxes. So they didn't. So they just printed money. And as long as they were winning the war and people believed that at the end of the war that money would find some basis, uh, it, it worked okay. But as you say, by 1863, when things are not going quite as well as people had anticipated, um, that becomes of less and less value. So now instead of $10 to buy a product, it might take 100 or or 1000 And it got worse as time went on. So there are two things going on here. One is a blockade, which creates the shortages. But the other is the economic programs that the Confederacy adopted, particularly the idea of just printing money that contributed to inflation. Mm -hmm. Right. They, they were completely leery of raising taxes because there's already disgruntlement about this war as it drags on and more and more boys get killed. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, the, the phrase, a rich man's war, a poor man's fight, arose from a jaded confederacy as this war went bad on them. Well, it certainly did. And one of the reasons for that was because in the draft that the Confederacy adopted in 1862, when every able-bodied person initially between 18 and 40, and then between 17 and 45, and then between 17 and 50, was eligible for the draft, slave owners were exempt in fact, you were exempt for every 50 slaves you owned because the notion was, well, you need to stay at home and keep an eye on these folks or they're going to cause trouble uh, behind the scenes. So that is what led to the rich man's war and the poor man's fight. I get drafted. I go to war to fight for your right to own slaves. But because you own slaves, you're exempt from the draft. Something's wrong with this picture. 
But it's all this kind of stuff's being stirred up by the um, U.S. naval blockade over time having its effect. It is, but it's very slow. And that led to a lot of complaints in the northern newspapers. You know, the Navy in 1861 only had 42 active service ships. Well, I mentioned already at 190 or so harbors they have to blockade. You can't do that with 42 ships. So early on, the blockade is very porous. Ships are going in, ships are coming out, virtually thumbing their noses at the one or maybe two ships that are trying to seal up a port like Charleston or Savannah. Uh, but by 1863, that, those numbers are pretty substantial. Most of those ships, by the way, are ersatz. What the Navy did was buy existing merchant ships, strengthen the deck so they'd be strong enough to hold a naval gun or two, uh, and expand the quarters below deck and say, now you're a warship, go get them. Uh, you couldn't do that in the 20th century, obviously. In fact, this is kind of the last moment in history, technologically, where you could take an existing merchant ship and turn it into a, an effective warship. Now, it would not have been effective fighting other battleships, you know, ships of war, but it was certainly effective enough to blockade a port because the blockade runners are unarmed. But what they did have to be was steam-powered because otherwise you couldn't hold your position off the coast. You couldn't chase down a steam-powered blockade runner. And that led to an expansion of this new technology that's emerging during the Civil War as well. So the South counters this, as you mentioned, by blockade running, um, the, especially in the first year or so, as the blockade isn't as effective yet. The Rhett Butlers of the South are making a fortune getting everything in past the blockade. Uh, that, they're less and less successful as they go on, as you mentioned. But um, blockade running is a large part of the Southern approach. And what is the other in its commerce rating? Yeah, first, let me comment on the blockade running first, because I think you made a good point. Rep Butler has much to answer for in terms of American perception of what blockade running was like, that he was bringing in petticoats and perfumes and making a <laughs> killing and all this kind of stuff. Early on, it is true that blockade runners were independent entrepreneurs, and they did it for the money. Let's not, you know, kid ourselves that these are great patriots. Some were, indeed. But uh, the profit margin is very much on their minds. And so that did occasionally lead to bringing in stuff that was not highest on the list of Robert E. Lee's list of things I need. So what happened in 1864 was the government started to take over blockade running. Well, think about how this flies in the face of state rights. The central government of the Confederacy is going to tell private ship owners, you have to do this. You must carry out Confederate government-owned cotton, and you must bring back at least 50% of the goods on this list. Well, there was a lot of opposition to that, and especially when it got to 75% and then 100%. And what finally happened in 1865 is the government took it over altogether. They commissioned them as Confederate ships, put an officer in charge, and said, we're doing it. So the Confederacy had to make a lot of compromises with their ideological pole star of independent rights and state rights just in order to survive. So then the other question you asked was about the commerce rating. Uh, if the blockade is the typical superior Navy's strategy in a war, the typical inferior Navy's strategy is to attack your opponent's commerce. You can't fight his fleet. You're too weak. You don't have the wherewithal to do it. So what you do is you go after his commerce. Now, in the early 19th century, a lot of this was done by privately owned ships called privateers. And they would go out independently owned, privately owned, not part of the government at all, but they would get a piece of paper called a letter of mark, quite literally a license to steal 
and they would go to sea and they could stop, search, seize, burn, destroy, or capture any ship belonging to the enemy. And whatever they took, they kept, including the ship and everything in it. So potentially that was a, a real profit motive. And during the American Revolution and the War of 1812, American privateers did quite well against British trade. But it didn't work so well in the uh, American Civil War because the privateers had to have a port where they could bring those ships back into harbor, have them condemned and sold, and then pocket the money. So these folks early on dumped privateering and went straight to blockade running. So again, the government had to step in. The government purchased warships, mostly abroad, mostly in England, and sent them out to attack not the Union fleet, but Union merchant ships. And this is where the Alabama, Shenandoah, Georgia, and other such uh, famous commerce raiders of the Civil War got their start. Yeah, they're kind of the stuff of legend in uh, Confederate Civil War naval history. And you're right, the, the standout sort of iconic vessels of that class were largely um, English-built. Very interesting, because they, they did their best job to stay completely neutral. Queen Victoria wanted no association with... Uh, Society based on servitude of others in bondage, but um, they're making some really good uh, commerce raiding ships for the South nonetheless. So. And that's an interesting phenomenon, too, because the British government had a law against doing this. Well, here's a vessel being built at Merseyside across the Mersey River from Liverpool in the Birkenhead shipyards. And everybody there knew exactly why it was being built, for whom it was being built. It was designed specifically to be a long-range commerce raider. But the builder said, oh, no, we're building this for Italy or Egypt or somebody else. And the authorities just didn't care enough to really look into it, even though it was wink, wink, nudge, nudge. We know what's going on. And after the war... The United States government sued Britain for millions of dollars. They originally wanted them to pay for the whole cost of the war. Well, they're not going to do that. But they did end up paying $15 million, which today is a rounding error, but then was pretty serious money. Well, let's get back to the operational learnings of enforcing this blockade or executing this blockade. So on page 15, you've got this sort of... Uh, folksy-looking diagram of Scott's Great Snake. As you said, this is basically goes from Alexandria all the way to Brownsville. Oh, this one winds, you know, around Texas and up to, up you know, back down the rivers. Yeah. Um, and so you said early on it was very porous and then it got better through, through uh, having more assets available. And, and you mentioned they had to be steamships to hold station. So what were the learnings as the blockade went on um, that that they leveraged and how, how, I mean, this just seems like a mind boggling mission. It's a huge mission. I mean, the problem is the size of it. Uh, when the war began, the United States Navy had 42 ships. When the war ended, it had 671. That's a four year period. That's the biggest expansion comparable, I suppose, to World War II. Uh, if you count every hole that went to sea from 1941 to 1945. But it, it mobilized uh, Union industry. There were objections because it wasn't entirely secure. Ships were still getting in, still getting out. A lot of people said, well, this is a waste of time, effort, resources, and manpower. Let's take those 100,000 guys sitting uselessly off the coast and put them in a blue uniform and give them a rifle and send them down to Virginia. 
that did not happen, and it's it's just as well that it did not happen, because I don't think that would have accelerated the end of the war. So what had to happen was that Lincoln and his advisors, and particularly his Navy Secretary Gideon Wells, had to have confidence in the long-term outcome, the impact the blockade would have. That drawing that you mentioned, Scott's Great Snake, the Anaconda, was intended to kind of poke fun at it a little bit. Uh, but in a way, what it reveals is not only the, the sealing off, not completely, but partly, of the coastline, but that tail goes up the Mississippi River and then up the Ohio River. If you imagine the Ohio and the Mississippi and the Gulf of Mexico and the Atlantic and the Potomac River as bodies of water where warships can navigate, the South is an island. And that brings me back to Eric's comparison with what was happening in World War II with the Japanese and, for that matter, with the British as well. They needed those imports to survive. If you can cut off those imports, they will shrivel and die. Now, the, the British did not in either of the two world wars, largely because of the United States. The Japanese did. It was that elimination of their resources, including food, that had to be imported from the outside that destroyed them. Now, of course... The Confederacy didn't need to import food. It could feed itself. But a lot of the transportation in the South was by river or by coastal waterway, and those were cut off. So then they had to depend on the railroads, and the railroads were pretty rickety, and the cavalry started tearing those things up. So it just got worse and worse and worse until by 1865 it was unsustainable. Now, your original question was what lessons did the blockaders learn on this? And I think one of the things they learned first— Sailing ships won't cut it. you got to have steam. Secondly, that you need more than a handful of ships. Charleston at one point was blockaded by as many as 35 and 40 ships because there are several channels into Charleston. And if you blockade one, they'll use a different one. If you try to blockade them all, they sometimes slip in between. So it's simply the sheer mass of numbers necessary to effectively enforce a blockade that was the biggest learning curve for the Union Navy. How long would a single ship stay on station? I mean, were these day-long cruises and they'd swap out, or were you out there for a couple of weeks? Months. How did that, months. We're out there for months. And, in okay. fact, what the Union Navy did was establish uh, ports of replenishment along the Confederate coast. Port Royal, which is a big uh, waterway, in almost exactly halfway in between Charleston and Savannah, was captured by the Union early on in November of 61, early in the war, and they turned it into a major naval base, and they sent down repair ships and, and colliers and all kinds of support ashore and afloat, and you'd be on the blockade at Charleston for two months, then you'd go into Port Royal, replenish recoil, and you'd go back for two more months. It was tough on the crew. They were out there... Years in some cases. Um, another aspect of the Civil War uh, that the Navy touches on, uh, one of the great campaigns of the war is actually um, a stellar example of joint Army-Navy cooperation. Why don't you tell us about that? Yeah, this is critical. I, I tell you, people have to remember that during the time of the Civil War, there was no Department of Defense. There's no Joint Chiefs. There's a Secretary of the Navy who sits on the cabinet as a full cabinet member, and a secretary of war who sits on the cabinet. And they were rivals as much as partners. They did not have to take orders from one another. I recall telling a class full of midshipmen one day in a naval history class that, you know, during the Civil War, the most senior general in the Navy, Winfield Scott himself, could not give an order 
to the most junior Navy enlisted man. And of course, my student said, well, that's exactly the way it should be, sir. That's, that's just right. But that makes it very difficult to have combined operations. The Navy can't tell the Army what to do. The Army can't tell the Navy what to do. What had to happen was the commanders of each unit had to meet, have a conversation, and decide collectively that they were willing to cooperate. And if they were willing to cooperate, as, for example, they did at Vicksburg, things worked out. If they were not willing to cooperate, as, for example, at Charleston, South Carolina, then it came all unglued. Charleston never did get captured until it was cut off by William T. Sherman from the landward side. It was still holding out almost when the war came to an end. So um, tell us about what happened at Vicksburg, one of the key turning points. And a perfect example is jointness that's so hard to achieve back then. Yeah, as I mentioned, it had to be cooperative jointness. Um, the commander of the Navy was uh, David Dixon Porter, after whom Porter Road is named, right over here where all the big shots live. Uh, David Dixon Porter was a little bit full of himself, as a, uh, truth be known, uh, and not likely to cooperate in many circumstances. But Grant and Sherman, who commanded the Army forces, knew that about him. And if you look in the uh, archives, the letters that they sent are full of flattery. Oh, Admiral Porter, your insight is so wonderful. Would you please advise us about ways that we could accomplish this objective? <laughs> Well, that was exactly the right note to sound. They would meet on Porter's flagship, which was the Black Hawk, sitting in the river and greasing the wheels with this kind of flattery. They convinced Porter that the way to do it was to get the army somehow south of Vicksburg and behind it, which was the only way you could approach it. It sits upon a high bluff overlooking the river. But to do that, Porter would have to run his ships past that bluff full of Confederate guns. And Porter said, by golly, I'll do it. He didn't have to. Grant could not order him to do it. But he did and transported, uh, and having done that, transported the army across the river. Grant came up behind Vicksburg, and after 47-day siege, Vicksburg surrendered. And Vicksburg is important because it's the buckle on the strap that holds the two halves of the Confederacy together. And once it's gone, the size of the logistic base from which Lee can draw resources is cut almost in half. The Texas beef and wheat that would come across the river, not anymore. So again, and that made the blockade even more effective. Right. So Vicksburg and then Gettysburg happening almost simultaneously. Same day. Quite literally the same day. It's, it's pretty much all over but the shouting for the South at that point. It's going to drag out for a little more, but that's the real well, turning point. More, two more years. Yeah, right? and not only that, people forget. People say, oh, well, that was it then. And and I guess if you were doing a, a, on points that you would say, yeah, that's the Confederacy has no hope now. But more men were killed in the Civil War after Gettysburg than before Gettysburg. The bloodshed in Northern Virginia, in the wilderness, in Spotsylvania, and Cold Harbor, and Appomattox, all of that Anocracy. still to come. Right, yeah. and that's the greatest tragedy of it, because there really was no way for them to win still. It was just sheer dogged refusal to... Um, well, see, that's the problem. Um, their argument was, uh, there's maybe there's no way we can win, but there's no way we can lose, because they have to occupy our entire country and hold it, gee, let's see, how long? Forever. How big a task is that? What's our task? Survive till tomorrow. If the Lincoln administration gets voted out of office in 1864 and George McClellan, his Democratic opponent, is elected, 
South probably gains its independence. So it, it, militarily, you can say it's all over but the shouting by July of 1863. But politically, there's a lot more to go. So when you were just talking, Craig, I saw the war in Afghanistan. And the Taliban is the Confederacy. The way you just framed it is exactly the Taliban logic for what the Americans have to do to stop them. You've got to occupy the entire country. And we attempted to do this logistically and manpower-wise. And all we, all we, the Taliban, have to do is sort of agitate you from time to time to keep you here. And, and they were very until good at you, that. Until you get sick of it and go away. But this, what by the, the way, was exactly what the Japanese had in mind in World War II. They did not expect to defeat the United States in a war. They knew they couldn't do that. But what they thought they could do was capture this huge expanse of resources in the South Pacific and the Central Pacific and defy the United States to take it back. And the United States would try and they would win battles and they would kill lots of Japanese soldiers. But after a year or two or three or five or ten, they'd say, oh, the hell with this and quit. And you're right. That's exactly what the Taliban has done. And the, that's what the VC did as well, yep. right? This is, yep. it's almost every war we've right. ever fought. Right. The revolution was the same thing. I mean, we just have to um, keep our army in the field and keep the torch lit. They have to try to keep the lid on it, which they never can entirely do. Um, but in the case of uh, Japan, uh, a couple of uh, famous bombs kind of took that out of the fight out of them. In the case of the South, it was the three pronged. Um, assault, full-on assault of uh, Grant and um, Sherman and Sheridan just rampaging their way down through Dixie and like no quarter, no mercy, civilian populace is all part of the equation to just get the fight out of them. I guess. Well, I think I think what a big factor in that is that by 1864 and certainly by 1865, the South had invested itself so much in the survival and the success of Robert E. Lee's army. So when his army surrendered, when Robert E. Lee himself became literally a prisoner of war on parole, but a prisoner of war nonetheless, at Appomattox, there were other active Confederate armies in the field and they might have tried the Taliban trick of saying, oh yeah, come and get us. We're up here in the Appalachians. You can't find us. We can carry this out for 20 years. You'll give up. We care more than you do. But they had invested themselves in the success of Robert E. Lee. And when he said, I'm done, so were they. So, and this is relevant to the Naval Institute's creation, we have this huge naval buildup during the war, and then it went, it atrophied quickly after the war, right? And this is why and this is a very sort of cursory reading of it, but Emma Warden and the other 14 gathered here as he was superintendent in 1873, and he looks out on the Severn that was a lot wider then, <laughs> um, and he all he sees are square riggers, right? There are no steam-powered ships. And, in fact, the argument was, well, why don't we just go back to sail? I guess that was the argument from Congress or whatever, and Warden's head is exploding along with his exo and the others who were part of that original meeting. So how did that happen? Well, it's kind of an American trope uh, that we are never ready for war when it comes. Build up furiously because of the depth and strength of our industrial infrastructure until we overwhelm our enemies. And when the war is over, we say, well, we're done with that. 
dust our hands off and go back to business as usual. We could get away with that for much of our history because of the Atlantic Ocean and subsequently the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. We were a global island in many ways. Mackinder would have called it that. And, and it allowed us to escape that. But the end of the 19th century and certainly the beginning of the 20th made it clear that we could not be an isolated island any longer. The world would find us. And I think Warden knew that and the people who were with him uh, knew that and had to recognize that it was necessary to be prepared in peacetime for the war that maybe you don't see yet but is out there over the horizon somewhere. Well, as the 19th century went into the 20th, um, America's role changed, obviously, in the ways you're indicating. Um, and we've talked about the Civil War here, and I could continue this um, afterwards, you know, for hours, you know, just for fun. But I want to talk about some of the other things you've worked on, because um, uh, your, your book on World War II at sea, I just found to be a fascinating uh, work. I highly recommend that to anyone. Um, and I'm curious as to what you've written a lot about the Civil War, but you're also establishing a good body of World War II literature as well. And I'm curious what you're working on these days, Craig. Yeah, thanks, Eric. I appreciate that. I've just finished a, a book on uh, Chester Nimitz. N oh, boy. Nimitz at war uh, begins the day he takes command at Pearl Harbor, ends the day he signs the instrument of surrender on, surrender on the Missouri. So it's the war seen from his headquarters, through his eyes. I do some operational stuff because you have to, but it's mainly how he dealt with his subordinates. And you think of who those subordinates were. Terrible, uh, terrible Turner, Kelly Turner, uh, uh, Bull, Halsey, uh, Howling Mad Smith. And I won't need to say almost nothing about Douglas MacArthur. But <laughs> dealing with this cast of characters, uh, he had to be almost a magician to get this done and breaking that down and understanding how he did it and how it happened that was a real insight for me. I've I've been working on uh, the Second World War now for a couple of decades. I did three, 30, 35 years on the Civil War and my Civil War fans are still mad at me for jumping ship, so to speak, um, into the Second World War. But uh, I have found uh, that such a fascinating uh, area of exploration and, and Nimitz is, uh, is one of the key elements of that to me. I can't wait to read that. Uh, is it just finished? Uh, do you have a publication date? Or? It'll be out in June, uh, a year from now, June of 2022. In time for Father's Day, my editor yes. tells me. No, that's the biggest yeah. book buying day of the year. <laughs> I, yeah, I can see why they're uh, yeah. putting it that way. So but the other thing about Nimitz, and I just discovered this uh, while I was researching a private project, is he's the guy who greenlighted the Blue Angels. I that I did that. not know. Yeah. As so, CNO. As CNO. Yeah. And See, I, I really stopped the word. There's a little epilogue about him as CNO, but I didn't go into it in detail. But well, that's a nice nugget. I like it. What we forget about is he went from being a five star to being a four star. So he basically goes from being a COCOM to being a service chief, which is a demotion of sorts, right? Um, and But during his time as CNO, he was afraid that the public was going to forget about naval aviation. Yeah. That's so that's why he. Because uh, one he of his critics was Jack Towers, of course, who was the senior naval aviator and his deputy commander at Pearl Harbor. And Towers was furious at him. I don't want to say he hated him, but he, he distrusted him because he didn't think that Nimitz was sufficiently aviation minded. So to have that piece of information is particularly yeah, interesting. Yeah. And the other fun fact, Naval Institute wise, is 
Chester Nimitz contributed to Proceedings Magazine in 1912 yes, as a lieutenant. I, I have read his all of his articles a, in Proceedings. A great story about submarines and how we have to get yep. our act together. Yep. So the article, now that we've made this this podcast about Nimitz, um, the article in the June issue of Naval History is called The Blockading Raiding Navies of the Civil War. The author is our good friend Craig Simons. Craig, thank you for coming in the studio proper today. It's great to see you. You're very welcome. And just one quick note. I got lost when I first came in the door because of all the work that's going on. So I wandered around and saw some of the work that is happening. What a beautiful place. What a transition. It's fantastic. We have a home field now. You bet. You bet. Well, thank you, Craig. You're welcome. That'll do it for this episode of the Proceedings Podcast. Remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. We'll see you again very soon.